Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the Dear Prudence podcast. I am Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg, but mostly known as Dear Prudence. Uh, with us this week, we have fellow Sladian uh, Dan Coyce in the studio, and we will get to introducing him uh, shortly. But first, I want to talk a little bit about fat phobia and the externalization of the fear of death. I've gotten two letters in the last week that are nominally about someone else's size and about someone else's relationship, but which I suspect are in fact about our fear of death and of ambiguity and chaos, which lead to death. Um, and I think it's an important distinction because it's really okay to say I'm afraid of death and things that are outside of my control and things that confuse me and things that go against cultural norms that are sort of designed to make me forget about my own imminent death uh, scare and confuse me. That's great. You should say that. Absolutely. And when you're not aware of it and you think this is just a normal response and you 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 respond to your own fear of death by trying to control the people around you, uh, you become an asshole. And and I'm here to, to keep us from becoming assholes. I don't want us to all be assholes. Or at the very least, if you're going to be an asshole, I want you to do it on purpose. I want you to do it with the full knowledge of the assholery you are about to embark upon. Um, this was actually pointed out to me by a reader on Twitter. I got a letter from a landlord who had had a tenant die, and they were sad about it, but they mostly felt like the tenant had brought it upon themselves. They died young uh, because, uh, as the landlord learned while scavenging through their recycling bins, there were a lot of pizza boxes, um, which clearly were the, the sole cause of this person's untimely death. And they also felt like because she was a fat person, um, that that, again, was like absolutely why she died. And uh, they wanted to include a clause in future future tenant agreements that you'll you'll have a healthy life if you live here, um, which is it was very vague, this understanding of what would a healthy life entail and how far would it go and, and what would they have to promise and, and what would they have to allow their landlord to determine what was or wasn't healthy. But it was just this real sense of, I need to find out why this death happened because it inconvenienced me and it happened at a time I didn't want it and it affects my money and my money is what keeps me from dying. Again, like people don't think these things out loud, but that's what's there. That's what underneath. And so they felt like if I can just determine that this person died because she ate pizza and was a fat woman, then I know it won't happen to me. It won't happen to other people around me. And I can control future tenants and make sure that they'll never die. And I just, guys, we're all going to die. And you can be the healthiest person in the world and be hit by a car extremely healthily. Um, and it will kill you dead. And uh that's something that we all have to deal with and address. And if you are at a point where you are so anxious and freaked out by the idea of dying when you're not prepared and, and when you're not ready, that you think you can somehow uh, write into a contract the promise, essentially, uh, that no one will die by surprise, like um, you're setting yourself up for a world of hurt. You're going to hurt the people around you and you're going to hurt yourself. 
on that note, uh, I want to welcome today our guest, Slate Culture Editor Dan Coyce. Uh, he is the co-host of our fellow podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting, and he too is going to die someday. Dan, welcome to the show. I'm not afraid to die. Aren't you? I'll give I'm, advice on this podcast. I'm very from afraid from the to perspective die. of someone who doesn't give a shit about dying. So if you died tomorrow, you'd be like, you'd welcome it. You'd you'd open your arms and just embrace the sweet kiss of death. I would. I do it every day, man. As an editor, I ride the dizzy edge of life and death. Dan, I can't help but feel that you are currently Truth being disingenuous. Uh, maybe a little. All right, all right, but this is great because yeah. you know what we want fighting on this show. So you're not afraid to die, and I am afraid to die. And with that in mind, you and I are going to advise the people. So please view our advice through those two lenses. Yeah, if you I don't mind dying, listen to Dan. If you are afraid <laughs> and you want to live honestly and engage with that fear, listen to me. Yeah. Great. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's get started. I'm going to go ahead and read our first letter, uh, which is just titled, What's Wrong With Me? Dear Prudence, I keep making terrible decisions and can't seem to stop. Last year, I left my home, my family, my friends, a 20-year, secure, if uninspired career to move 2,000 miles away to be with my first love. I'm 50, and I was his first love as well. He's married, and his wife invited me to their home. We decided to share him, although his wife and I were not interested in one another like that. My job here fell through. My dog died. The romance flopped spectacularly. I still love him desperately. And when he told me that it was over and that he didn't love me and never had, I begged him to reconsider, only to have his wife come in and start screaming at me to keep my fucking hands off her fucking husband. I snapped. I tried to kill myself. I ended up in a coma and then went to the psych ward. I've been out for only a week. I'm back at work. I'm freshly diagnosed as bipolar one. I'm on new meds that I don't think are helping. Of course, I had to move out and I'm living a very lonely life. I do not feel stable and I cry for hours every night. The loneliness is killing me. I have psychiatric follow-up and intend to do what I can to survive and thrive. My former boyfriend is now making noises about wanting to be friends with benefits with me once I am quote-unquote well again, which sounds more like he wants a self-supporting mistress that he can come and have sex with and then leave at will. I still love him, but I realize this is a gross affront to my worth as a human being. I just don't trust myself to say no. Counseling may help, but I still don't trust myself to make good, healthy decisions. Everything I do blows up in my face. Any advice? Uh, I'll begin. Please do. By, by responding to this letter writer uh, as I responded to you when you first sent me this letter. Holy shit, dude. Uh, there's a lot going on in this letter. First of all, to this letter writer, I'm very sorry that all these things have happened to you. I'm very sorry uh, about how bad you feel about your decisions, and I'm sorry you feel you can't trust yourself to make good ones. I think the fact that you are writing and recognize many of the problems that you are facing um, is a positive sign, and I think that the fact that you are seeing a counselor, that you have psychiatric follow-up, that you're taking meds, whether that you may feel right now are not helping, but which I think in the long run could really help to stabilize you alongside continued care and help. I think those are all good signs. Um, but I also think that you are right now faced with a, a long-term question, which is what am I going to do with my life? And a short-term question, which is what do I do about this guy? The short-term question feels easier to me, Mallory, to yep. answer than the long-term question. 
The answer to the short-term question is you block his number on your phone and you never talk to him again, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I don't think this is going to be an issue that you and I fight over. Um, I I feel similarly in the sense that I'm kind of bowled over by this letter just in the sense that I I feel like I want to let this letter writer know how proud I am of her. Like she has just been through the mill and people have treated her with kind of breathtaking cruelty and I just I just want to give her a hug. I just I just wish very much that I could let her know that she is she does not deserve this and she deserves to be loved and not invited into some bonkers who's afraid of Virginia Woolf creepy psychosexual house of lies. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I just I think this couple is is one of the top 10 worst couples I've ever heard of. And I'm very mad at them. And uh, I, I yeah, I, I think you're right. I think she should absolutely if she doesn't trust herself to be able to say no to him like reach out and ask for help i i I don't know how she left her uh family and friends when she moved away i don't know if it was the sort of thing where they were upset by her decision and things were sort of fraught but i hope very much that if they knew in what kind of trouble she was in they would want to be there for her so I, i mean like call your family if you can call your friends call your old co-workers like let them know you need help not talking to him maybe you have a family member who could come out and be with you like ask for help kind of demand it honestly like let people know here's how bad it is i kind of want to die i tried to kill myself i don't feel like things are going to get better for a long time and i'm afraid that i can't make good decisions right now like ask for support right like get get people to take your phone and hold it and watch stupid tv with you right like get get a support network. yeah well one one thing that's left unsaid as you note is that we don't have a sense of how open the option of returning is. Right. Yeah, because of course that was... We don't know if... Right. We don't know if she can go back. My hunch is is that the the letter writer's family may not be open to her at this time. Hmm. But, um, But I do think that the letter writer's friends could be and probably are. Right. And that is a support network that if you feel you have any connection to, you should reach out to yeah, and perhaps return to where they are or at the very least make full use of them. And as Mallory says, right. demand their help. They are your friends and they will be happy to do it. Right. Because on the one hand, I don't want to encourage a move right now, given that this this letter writer is a week out of uh, an institution um, and is just starting on meds. Like I don't I, I think like in just terms of the next couple of weeks and maybe even months, um, I, I I wouldn't feel comfortable saying, but just move, go home, find a new doctor. Like you should stay with the people who are treating you currently if you feel like they're doing a good job treating you. But when it comes to your friends, like don't downplay this. Don't say I'm having kind of a hard time. Say like I nearly died. If there's anyone who can come out and see me right now, now would be a wonderful time. And I would very much appreciate it. I know not everyone can drop everything and go 2000 miles away to be with a friend. But if there's a chance you have a friend who can take the time off work, even for a weekend, like ask and and if they yeah. can't do that at least say can you skype me on a daily basis for the next week like can you call me can can i have some sort of verbal contact with someone um right and you may view this as like a a dire imposition and you can't believe you're making your friends do something something like this but your friends want to do this for you if right. they only knew how how difficult your circumstances were, they would be on their hands and knees begging to help you. So give them that opportunity. And I I think, too, one thing I want to stress here is I think this letter writer is being really hard on on herself. I think 
that um, obviously there were things that she's done that she regrets. I don't think she is a person who constantly makes terrible decisions. Like, first of all, I don't think it's necessarily like in and of itself a bad idea to move for a relationship. And I don't think it's a bad idea to get involved with a couple like in a vacuum. I don't think that's a bad idea. Um, right. uh, maybe she could have done more due diligence. Maybe she went into this naively, but like you're, you know, you had a 20 year secure career. You had family and friends. It's not as if every year on a whim, you move across the globe, um, to be with someone really untrustworthy. So I think to put it in perspective, like you trusted the wrong people at the wrong time. You're not a person who can't make good decisions. And I think that's a really important distinction to make. Right. And this goes to the broader question of, well, what now on a long-term basis for you? And that has a lot to do with the way you view yourself and the way you view this episode of your life. Like there is a glass half full version of this story, which you are certainly is very difficult for you to see right now, Mm -hmm. but you are 50 and at a time when people often uh, get a wild hair, you got a wild hair and you went on a wild adventure and it turned out really bad, but People do that all the time, yep. and it does not necessarily have to be like a mark of failure or shame you carry with you all your life. It is a crazy thing you tried, and now if you want to go to some more stable, secure version of your life, mm-hmm. you can do that. You yep. can make that choice now. It doesn't. You don't have to forever be a person who makes really bad decisions, and the evidence of that is a big decision you made that didn't work out. Right, and I want to really stress, you know who makes terrible decisions? Your ex-boyfriend and his wife, they invited you to come live with them. And then, you know, regardless of I I don't believe that there's something you could have done to merit this kind of behavior, regardless of whether or not they realized this relationship wasn't working out. The way that they broke up with you was monstrous. There are a million more kind ways to do that than the way that they did. that. Yeah, it was just outrageous. Like, that's a terrible decision. And then to come to someone who's recently tried to end their own life and say, hey, by the way, when you're feeling better, I'd sure like to fuck. Like, that is a horrible abdication of your moral obligations as a human being. This guy makes terrible decisions. Like, put yourself in a separate category from terrible decisions. That's a bad decision. That's the wrong way to respond to suffering is to ask, when can I stick my dick in it? Um, I'm I'm mad at him and he is a bad person. Uh, So I feel like I'm so proud of you for recognizing you say this is a gross affront to my worth as a human being. Yes, you have accurately categorized this moral choice he has made. You are not overreacting. You are right. Write it down if you have to. What he is asking is for you to compromise who you are and your self-worth. And that's fucking terrible. So good for you. Um, And I say, like, be this upfront with your doctors. Tell them how bad it is. Tell them how lonely you are. Tell them you're afraid the medication's not going to work. Call your friends. Call your family. Tell them how bad it is. And just be honest as shit. Like, just say, I feel awful. And, and, And let people help you. Because I think if you give most people the opportunity, if you are vulnerable and honest about what you need, they will not respond to you by saying, get your fucking hands off my husband. Get out of the house. When can I fuck you again? Most people in your life will say, I'm so sorry. How can I help you? And so I hope very much that you trust the other people in your life with helping you. Um, and can ask for that help because I do think more of them than otherwise will step up and do what they can to show you that you're loved, to show you that your life has value and meaning, uh, to show you that it is okay to fall apart uh, and that you deserve help. 
and fuck that guy. Yeah, seriously, that guy, that guy can eat a bag of dicks. He's all right, just, let's move on yeah. to question number all right. two. Sorry, I'm getting really heated here, and I just, ugh. Uh, all right, question number two. Mm-hmm. The subject is, I was the love of his life, question mark, exclamation point, question mark. I'm in my late 40s. Recently, a friend sent me a link to an obituary of somebody I briefly dated in high school. To my shock, I was listed as, quote, his high school sweetheart and the love of his life with other survivors like his mother, children, siblings, and other relatives. I dated this man for about two months in my junior year of high school. We broke up when he graduated and went off to college. It was a nice little romance, but nothing earth-shattering. Honestly, I cannot remember that he or I seemed too upset when we broke up. No wives or ex-wives are listed in the obituary, but he did have three children, so he had to have had other women in his life who were more important than me. The fact that he had children shows that they were intimate, which was more than we were. My husband saw the obituary, and he was more than a little confused by it and upset as well. I'd never mentioned this boyfriend because he just wasn't important in the scheme of things. I'm not saying my husband thinks I'm lying, but I do think he believes I'm hiding something from him. I'm at a loss what to do. I kind of want to ask his survivors how and why I got listed in the obituary, but I don't know any of them, so I don't know how I'd approach them with such an odd question, and I really don't know what to tell my husband other than I don't know what this guy was thinking. Any help? I just want to say that while you were reading this letter, all I could think of was uh, George Jones. He stopped loving her today and those big shuddering yeah, violins yeah. in the background. And um, it's, it's a lot less romantic in real life than it is in a song. So you, so if you're in this woman's position. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Dan, you think she should you... call the survivors? Say, hey, was your dad in love with me? No. Like, what good would that do? Yeah. I, I, do I, I also do not think that you should call grieving children uh, and ask them whether their dad talked about you. I think that that would be uh, at best unnecessary and at worst would be an unkind thing to do to grieving children. You could demand a correction from the newspaper. Oh, my God, Dan. <laughs> I mean, uh, yes. no, I'm trying to think this I out loud. that like, would also be cruel. I'm trying to think of if there's anything externally that she could do other than just accept there's going to be some degree of mystery and that he clearly saw the relationship differently than she did. It would be less inappropriate to call the newspaper and say, hey, who writes your obituaries? I have a question. Do you remember writing this one? Who told you to say I was the love of his life? Because um, I, I, I could sort of see this happening where just like a bored obituary writer, uh, you know, is given like a bullet list of facts about somebody and says, well, it mentions an old girlfriend, but but no wives or ex-wives. I'll, I'll throw in a little rhetorical flourish and kind of forgot about That's... it. And then later this like sort of opens up a rift in someone else's life. That's an interesting idea in theory, but in practice, almost certainly no journalist wrote this obituary. If it's like the vast majority of death notices in America, mm-hmm. it was written by the family or by the subject before he died and then just submitted to the newspaper. Like you don't get your obituary written by an obituary writer unless you're famous. Oh, yeah, that's right. All right. Yeah. Well, then there goes my theory. So in lieu of being able to call a newspaper or or a, a relative, I think the answer to how did this happen is – You'll never know, and you should do your best to just not worry about it. Know that you made an impact on someone's life, uh, and be satisfied with knowing that you are the kind of woman that someone can't stop thinking about 40 years later. Yeah, I mean, I can Um, sure understand why that would sit oddly with her. Uh, I'd have a hard time dealing with that ambiguity. Because, again, here it is. Nobody likes ambiguity. Everyone wants answers. You wish he was alive so you could ask him about it, but he's not. He's dead. 
I mean, you wish she was alive in the sense that it's better when people are alive than they were dead. But knowing this, it would be deeply uncomfortable to have that conversation with him. Better that he took his secret to the grave, I say. All right. That's that's one point. That's that's one vote for taking your secrets to the grave from Dan. (laughs) Uh, I... Uh, All right, but so here's so here's the greater question: mm-hmm. What do you do about your husband? Yeah, because um, like, why your husband should take your word for this, right? He I think should you know just you just gotta be. Uh, my hunch is that he does. My hunch is that if you just sit down with him, I mean, unless there's a long history of like malfeasance in your marriage, which is possible, but in general, most husbands in the situation, if you're like, I don't know, man, he, he, he it's weird. I, I. Seriously, don't know why he put this in his obituary. That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Most husbands will be like, all right. And even if it turned out that you had some kind of deeper relationship with this guy decades ago, who cares? That was before you were married to your husband. And if he has a problem with it, he can like go to hell. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, one vote for going to hell because you're curious Uh why someone's listing your wife in their obituary. Uh, Dan, I'm not going to go that far with you. I say he can go to the kitchen table and have a nice conversation with her about this. Um, well, that would be the first step. Yeah, that would be the step number yeah. one. Yeah, I mean, I definitely understand, yeah. like, if I was dating someone and this showed up in their life, I would have a lot of questions. But you have to ultimately accept it would not be appropriate to contact his family. You hadn't talked in decades. We all, I think, many of us have at least one or two exes that we probably think of more fondly than they think of us uh, or vice oh, versa. Yeah. So We like, would never put that in our fucking obituary. But, yes, that's definitely, like, a normal thing to feel. I also could totally see myself if I were, like, dying young, like, in my 40s and was just, mm-hmm. like, I'm going to go for broke. You know what I mean? Like, this is really unfair. I want to have something big and splashy. Like, I could totally see myself saying, when you write my obituary, here are the three people I want you to list that I'm just really mad at and I took my anger to the grave and I never forgave them. And here's two people I long for and I want them to feel terrible when I die. Like I could totally see myself pulling shit like that. And here's the four square mile coordinates where I buried a treasure. Yeah. I don't want anyone to feel peace when I go. I want, I want it to send a (laughs) ripple effect out into the universe of just confusion and longing. Where did she go? Why can't we follow? Um, So letter writer, don't give in to this dead ex-boyfriend's, Baloney, don't let him get away with it. Just put it aside. You're so mad at him. I'm so, I mean, it's like a it's like a dick move. It's a dick move from beyond the grave. But he was sad. He never he never <sighs> married. He 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 could never get over. It. He should have called, right? If it was that bad, he should have called her 15 years ago and said, "I can't stop thinking about you. Do you want to go out again?" Sure. Yeah. 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 Instead of just Fathering children with other women, yet always wishing it was her. All right, all right. I think we have answered this question about as thoroughly as we're going to. Uh, yeah. And and uh, take it, take the next one, George Jones. I will, I will. Uh, dear Prudence, recently my mother decided to get her financials and her will in order in the event of her eventual death. She's healthy now, but thinks it's important to start thinking about things ahead. I brought up some long-term care insurance and suggested that we look into it, and if it seems right, I would help pay for it. She brought this up to my aunt, who was appalled, and told my sisters and I that we are horrible people if we are not prepared to care for our mother ourselves until she dies. I'd love to be able to care for my mother at the end of her life, the way that she did for my grandmother, but I don't know that I can commit to that. When my grandmother was in her final years, my sister and I were all out of the house. My mom is one of six children, and the responsibilities were split. My mother had my two sisters and I late in life, so when she enters her 70s, my sisters and I will just be starting families of her own. None of my sisters, nor myself, or our spouses make a lot of money, so the probability that any of us would be able to take off months of work to provide care is unrealistic. 
We all live in the city, so we barely have enough space to house children, and my mother can't be guaranteed space. I would move home in a heartbeat to raise a family and be close to her, but it's an extremely rural area. It's very poor. I don't think I could find work within 60 miles. I'll work my hardest to make sure my mother is nothing but comfortable, but I also want to be practical, which means preparing for long-term care if it's needed. Is that wrong of me to honestly admit I might not be able to be her caregiver? No, no, it is not wrong. No, 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 right? no, no. My uh, so my big question here, because I think you and I are both going to be in total agreement that no, what you're suggesting is very loving and, and completely understandable. My question is, did your mother tell your aunt because she herself was insulted or hurt by your suggestion but wasn't right. willing to fight with you directly, so she's trying to triangulate? Or does your mom think this is a perfectly good idea and your aunt is just sticking her nose somewhere she doesn't belong? Because those are two really different situations. What do you think? Uh, it seems, well, I mean, I feel like if the mother had evinced any hesitation on this question, the letter writer would have included it given how like extremely guilt-ridden this letter writer is about right. her extremely innocuous suggestion. Right. No, she's clearly insurance. given a ton of thought to like, okay, I guess I could move home, but right. I really don't think I'd be able to work. So then we'd probably have to, you know, figure that out. And like this person's really put thought into it. It's not just like, oh, I don't feel like it. Right. So there's no hint in here that when she told her mom this, when he or she told her mom this, that, uh, that, the mom was upset in any way. So I kind of think it's just an ant like going off the rails mm -hmm. and like getting angry. And so, but I guess let's address both possibilities. So if it's just that your mom's sister like yelled at you, mm -hmm. but your mom is fine with the idea, well, tough shit for your mom's sister. Your mom's sister is not your mom. If you have to choose between one of them being angry at you and the other, choose your mom's sister and do the right thing which is getting long-term care insurance. Mm -hmm. uh, that's simple. If it's real, if it really is that you suspect that your mother is very upset about this, then that's worth sitting down and having a conversation with her in which you lay out essentially what you've laid out for us in this letter, mm -hmm. how deeply you care for her and how much you would want to be able to be the one that takes care of her. And you hope that life circumstances will allow such a thing to happen. But to bank on that, to basically make a bet that that will be the case mm -hmm. is a foolish thing to do. Yeah. And that the best way to respect your mother's future life and the relationship that you guys have is to prepare for uncertainty and to prepare for the possibility that you will not be able to do what you wish you could do for your mother, but you want to make sure that your mother has a happy and uh, loving place to be in her final years. I think part of what's such a shame about the aunt's response is it seems like they're doing everything right. Like when so many right. people want to avoid difficult conversations about money and end of care issues and, you know, the parent-child relationship, they're talking about it well in advance. She's perfectly healthy. They're making plans. They're thinking about buying insurance so that they won't be, you know, saddled with overwhelming medical debt in case she develops some, like, chronic illness that's really difficult for them to take care of. And then there's this added element now of because we're doing all the right things and thinking about the future before it happens – now someone's trying to make me feel like I'm a bad person. And clearly, this is clearly a, a person who's going to visit their mother no matter what, right? Like, this is not someone right. who says, my only two options are caring for my mother around the clock in my home or putting her in some sort of institution and just forgetting about her and letting her die alone. Um, right. There's a Sending her to the home for aged bears. Totally. Over the hill to the poorhouse. No, I mean, there's a right. wide spectrum of... of 
of possibilities in between those two extremes. And yeah, I think you're doing everything right. Your aunt, someone... Oh, your aunt's Casey, being a jerk. Yeah, your aunt's being yeah. a jerk. And, and I'm sure uh, if you just check in with your mom and make sure that your mom's okay with this, you can just say, look, my mom's comfortable with this. I'm comfortable with this. And it's not your business. And don't don't uh, and let her make you feel like a bad person. All listeners get long term care insurance. Like, yeah, just go do it. Go yeah. do it right now. Yeah. yeah, and don't tell your nieces and nephews that they're terrible people. I guess unless they really are. And even then, think about whether even or not then, be like, able to hear couch it. it. You know, like, definitely it, don't tell them that if they're actually good people doing the right thing. It's very hard That's for someone give the to hear you're a bad person. Like, let's go with you've made a bad choice or a series of bad choices and work our way up. Right. All right, we've got uh, one more. Uh, Dan, why don't you take us home with this one? Sure. Uh, The subject on our fourth question is, tired of being the good one. I am the oldest of three, but after the divorce four years ago, I basically have become a mother to my mother and my younger brother and sister. Uh, By this, the letter writer is referring to uh, his or her mother's divorce, her, her mother's divorce. I work as a nurse. I spend 12 hours on my feet only to come home and take care of everything else. My brother has quit three jobs in the last six months, smokes pot, and plays video games all the time. I found out my sister was lying to me about her college classes and has failed all of them, so that is $5,000 of my own money down the drain. I fight with my mother all the time about expenses and her complete lack of expectations for anyone but me. I wasn't there for her during the divorce, despite being at college, so that justifies all this. I want to leave, but I can't. I'm pretty much the sole breadwinner in the house. My mother has a part-time job that doesn't pay well, and neither of my siblings have one. The house is paid off, and my father gave it to her during the divorce, but taxes, repairs, and bills would far outstrip what my mother brings home. If I go, my family is screwed. I keep looking up nursing jobs across the country and fantasize about packing up a few bags, taking my car, and going to Alaska or Arizona, just somewhere far away. Staying is an exercise in frustration, but leaving means I can't look myself in the mirror in the morning. Can you think of some middle path? I don't know that I can think of a middle path. I think you should go. (laughs) Just take off. Take off for Alaska or Arizona. Yeah, I mean. I mean, the letter writer's concern is that she will be overwhelmed by guilt, that despite her annoyance with her family, the idea of leaving them in the lurch would – would crush her in some way. So the response to that is, what do you think happens if you actually go to Arizona? Do you think that your mother and brother and sister will starve to death in that house? I bet not. Yeah. I think probably they'll get jobs. If that is the alternative, um, your brother will probably play slightly fewer video games and get, get, get a job. Right. I mean, you'd have to get a job just to pay for the pot for starters. Mm hmm. Yeah. I also feel terrible um, that this person is also a nurse. Like you take care of people for 12 hours a day. It's not even like right. you have a job as like a securities trader where you get to go and be very like, I don't know what security traders do actually. So um, they shout, I think they just shout. Yeah. On, like, on it, it, but it's floor. like a job that requires empathy and compassion and tending to the needs of others. And then you go home and right. you have to do the exact same thing. You're a nurse right. 24 hours a day. That's so rough. there is, I mean, so there is a middle path and Mallory, I would like to hear what you think about this middle mm-hmm. path. The middle path is to go to Arizona, mm-hmm. work there, live cheaply, and send money home to your mother. That is a path that exists in the world. I don't mm-hmm. know if I'd put it in the middle, 
but it's a path. <laughs> uh, what do you think of that path? Would you recommend that as a way to make herself feel better about this decision that she clearly needs to make? Like, she obviously needs to get the fuck out of there. Right, right. I feel th- th- there's such a, a difference, I think, between helping people who genuinely require assistance and um, are doing, if not their best, at least, you know, sort of their fair share of of attempting to take care of themselves. And and there are different limitations on that for, for different people. There are different circumstances. Uh, so I, I, I don't I don't want to be the, tor- the sort of advice columnist who's sort of everyone's an island. Fuck everyone who's not constantly bringing home a paycheck and, and looking after themselves at every moment, because I, I, I truly don't feel that way. But, you know, what I see in this family is is like the little red hen. Right. You know, who's going to help me gather the grain? Who's going to help me winnow it? Who's going to help me, you know, mill it? Who's going to help me make the bread? And everyone says, not me. And then when it comes time to eat the bread, everyone wants to eat your bread. You know, your your mother owns her own home. All she has to do is pay taxes and her bills. Like that's that's a huge, huge uh, financial burden that is lifted from her. Uh, your brother, it sounds like, keeps getting jobs given to him. Um, and, and again, I, I understand that sometimes you have a series of bad jobs. I don't want to just assume that he's quitting them all frivolously, but it certainly doesn't sound like he's spending a lot of time on his own looking for the kind of job that he can enjoy or at the very least find bearable. Um, and it seems like your sister uh, is responding really badly to her own dysfunction by lying and hiding and hoping things will go away. So I'm not hearing anything that suggests to me that the financial assistance you're providing your family is helping. Like, I don't think it's helping them take care of themselves and get back on their feet. I think it's it's the kind of help that enables. So I think it would, in fact, be very helpful for you to maybe not move to Alaska, but to move to your own apartment. Um, I think to say, and you don't have to do it in the middle of the night. You don't have to do it without warning. But to say, hey, guys, um, I'd like to have my own place. I can afford it. I'm going to start moving out in a month. And you're going to have to make your own arrangements to keep the lights on and pay for the property taxes. And I wish you all the best of luck. Because, like, they're adults who it sounds like are capable of of, of working and uh, are choosing not to because you're doing everything for them. And I think you should stop so doing everything as, for them. as Little Red Hen does, you should eat the bread yourself. Uh, and, you know, the, the end of the little red hen does not say what happened to the cow and the pig and the dog, the ones who would not help. But I think they probably didn't starve to death because she wouldn't give them that loaf of bread. Yeah, no, they were probably okay. They were, they found their own way on the farm, uh, and, uh, and, and, and survived Mm -hmm. because they hopefully learned the lesson from this story. Um, I think I generally agree with you. I Damn think it, Dan. the question mark the question mark for me in this story in this letter is not the brother and the sister who are obviously deadbeats. The question mark is the mom who's fresh off a divorce who may who has a part time job. The letter writer says not that fresh she off a divorce. Well. Let's point that out. The divorce was four years ago. Well, it probably still feels pretty fresh. Yeah, uh, but you could be divorced and employed. A lot of people do it. <laughs> You know, but she is employed. So like, that's no, there's that's no true. That's I don't true. get the sense from this letter that the mom is the same kind of deadbeat as the sister and brother. Mm-hmm. She has a job that doesn't pay very well. 
the implication in such a statement is that she can't get a better job for whatever reason. Right. And it is true of many women who raise families mm-hmm. and then go through a divorce at the end of that process when they have adult children are suddenly left without that much support, bereft of skills because maybe they didn't go to school as long as they intended to. Maybe they don't have a resume full of work experience because they were raising those kids. I don't know the specific circumstances here, Mm -hmm. but it is true that that can be a pretty tough row to hoe. That's true. And I would be much more inclined to suggest to this letter writer that she does find some middle path that involves cutting her – Brother and sister are off. Right, because it sounds like she's still up. paying for her sister to go to school. Um, right, and I think that's which a really, she's not even doing. I think that's a really good point. I think that you're right. right that the mother does seem to be in a different category. Um, and But she also, I think, it would be great for you to encourage your mother to, like, let's say it's harder for her to find work. She's got a fully paid off house. She could take in a, a renter. Like, she right. could she Right, could there are, there's help you can give your mother that is not just sending her a check mm-hmm. and living light, with her, her and your siblings who right. you deeply resent. But like right. you're letting yourself get to a point where you feel like I can't not do all the things I'm doing. And you absolutely have to, if if only mentally say, I actually get to do anything. Like I may yeah. not choose to. You can to. definitely not do those things. Yes. Absolutely. And, and they will not die. And I think it's so much better to plan ahead than to wait until you just can't bear it another second and you move to Alaska and they never hear from you again. Um, yes, that is a good point that like that the longer you wait to do this, then then the more drastic a life change you eventually make because you just can't take it another second. Right. The more you damage those relationships beyond repair. Because like It doesn't the, sound like the, your brother and sister are currently incentivized to change the situation. No, no. And, and you have to kind of say to yourself, can I do this for the rest of my brother and sister's life? And it sounds like the answer is no. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Please so don't. I think I think you should seriously consider moving out, even if it's just to an apartment on the other side of town. And I think you need to make it really clear that you are no longer going to be financially responsible for your siblings, who are both adults, um, and, and need to, you know, uh, kind of go through this struggle without your uh, bankrolling them. And again, I don't want to sound harsh, like they can sink or swim bootstrapped. Like I genuinely feel like they are facing non insurmountable, but difficult struggles that they can and should meet. And you can be emotionally supportive. You can offer advice, but you are not obligated to bankroll them indefinitely. And then I think to separately with your mother, um, you know, talk to her about different ways that she can bring in enough income to pay the taxes on the house and the bills if you feel like you do want to send her enough money for the next year or two years or or whatever arrangement feels okay to you, um, enough to cover the taxes and the bills or to help uh, mitigate those costs, but not beyond that, not money to keep your brother supplied with pot uh, or video games. Like, I think that would feel, I think that would help you be able to look yourself in the mirror because you wouldn't feel like I'm abandoning my family and I'm leaving them to lose the house uh, just because I'm tired of, of doing all this but you've you've got to do some triage here things can't go on the way they are yes absolutely and take your brother's video games when you leave you also know? definitely like take at least a little of the pot you definitely yeah give yourself a day where you play video games and smoke pot i think you'll have a really 100%. nice time you know yeah. just like mess up all his saved files like do a bunch of side quests like 
you know, sell all the stuff that he has acquired uh, through. I she, just she's used. so responsible and driven. She's going to win those games that he's been playing for like years. <laughs> yeah, maybe you'll she's be gonna, able to like become a professional. He's going to save the princess. Player. Yes. Yeah. They, yeah. There's more than saving princesses now, Dan. Um, I, I I don't actually play video games. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, you've got a lot of options, and none of them. I think mean you won't be able to look yourself in the mirror. Um, yes. Frankly, I think it's 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 sad that often the people who are the most burdened are also the most hard on themselves. Like your brother should be kind of having a hard time facing himself in the mirror in the morning. Like, man, I'm really like not doing my part to take care of my family, and I'm letting my sister um, kind of work herself into a frenzy doing everything. And I really need to look at my life and figure out what I can do to be helpful. And instead, he's just sort of like, cool, everything's taken care of. I feel good. Um, that was a real motif in a number of the letters this week. People who uh, who really have not sinned, but who are beating themselves up over th- either their perceived sins mm-hmm. or the sins that they worry they might commit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great reminder that uh, that that you can be kinder to yourself about yep. the circumstances that you are in, yep. and that taking care of yourself is not necessarily uh, a bad thing. It yep. does not mean that you are being cruel to other people to be kind to yourself. As my as my dad says, one of the hallmarks of incompetence is the ability to recognize itself. So it's yep. it's, it's more often the person who is smoking pot all day, playing video games, who thinks things are great. No need to spend a lot of time right. agonizing over whether or not I'm doing the right thing. Food appears in my refrigerator every afternoon. Yeah, the dishes seem to get done. I don't know how, but they always end yeah. up moving from the sink to the dishwasher back into the cabinet. And I need not trouble myself with the provenance of these spoons. The next time I do this podcast, Mallory, I'm just going to smoke pot and play video games the whole time and allow you to answer all the questions. Fine, I still and get paid. I look forward to hearing you worry so much about what, what would happen if you abandoned me. Well, you've already admitted that you don't know how to play video games. So I have a feeling I'm just going to shout learn. like narrative spoilers at you. Yeah. Like, so. The boy who cried video games. This is, oh, man, man. Have you ever been the pot smoking video game player? Have you ever done that? I never, I never was. I never was that guy. That just was not my thing. I feel like you were, you were once a pot smoking video game player, right? I loved two things from the ages mm-hmm. of 16 to 20 something and that was smoking mm-hmm. pot and playing video games i loved it and it brought me a great deal of joy um and uh i i also did other things which i encourage people to do i did not do them to the exclusion of all else um but you didn't love them the way you loved pot and video games i mean it's pot and video games yeah. man like yeah no, there's a it lot, sounds, it sounds there's really a great lot right going now. on. Like, I get it. I get why he wants to smoke a lot of pot and play video games. But you have to, yeah. you know, you have to deny yourself uh, some of the pot and video games so that it feels special when you do it, as opposed to just uh, another Tuesday morning. I loved just one thing between the ages of 16 and 22, and that was flunking out of college and lying about it. Oh, is that the, are you making a dig at the sister or did you actually flunk out of college and lie about it? No, no, I'm I'm just making a dig at the sister. I didn't actually do that. Fair enough. The other thing that I did that yeah. I should really cop to is I would often eat little bits of my roommate's ice cream when I was high. You know, just like tiny, tiny spoonfuls so that I would hope they wouldn't notice. But over the course of several weeks. How many tiny spoonfuls per day? I mean, constantly. Do you know what I mean? Like people (laughs) would leave notes. Roommates would leave notes. It's like someone's eating my ice cream and like, please stop. And I'd be like, oh, 
I really sh- I don't do that now, by the way. I mean, I live alone, so there's that. But I also, you know, have since made restitution. Uh, I don't I don't take communal food anymore. I realize that that is a, a, a an unkind thing to do, and it really bothers people. And every time I would read the notes, I'd feel terrible, and I would think this is this is the the day I stop doing it. And then I'd get really high, and I'd think, oh, no one will notice if I just shave off little curly cues with the back of the spoon. Um, and 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 then we ended up with more angry kitchen notes. I feel like in our new pot positive era, a great the measure of whether you were truly grown up was if you just finally stopped smoking pot, but that's not true anymore. Maybe now the measure of if you are truly grown up is if when high you do not steal other people's food. Yeah, I mean, I think we can really separate like responsibly getting high from stealing ice cream. Um, yeah. and, and those are two very different things and you can get high without stealing anything, um, yeah. which is one of the great truisms of the modern age. Dan, I think that this should be the final note that we close upon today. Uh, for real. thank you so much for coming on the show, uh, and, and for giving so much wisdom, uh, from someone who's not afraid to die. My pleasure. And I'm off to, uh, drive home at 97 miles per hour. <laughs> Fantastic. Don't put on a seatbelt. No, no way. We're joking. Those are for chickens. Uh, Please don't call us with angry messages about how people should wear seatbelts. Dan's going to wear a seatbelt. I originally had decided against doing this or having this conversation because I feel like I've talked about it extensively. Uh, It's sort of become a part of the public conversation about this movie. But since the theme of so many of today's letters were people are making me feel guilty when they are doing something wrong, uh, I feel like it's really time to remind everyone that the, the moral of the Devil Wears Prada is apparently if your friend gets a job and works hard, you should make her feel like a piece of shit about it. And that makes me furious. Every time I think about that movie, I just want to reach into the screen and, like, grab Anne Hathaway by the back of her blazer and just have her say, you know what? Uh, None of you were complaining about how great this job was when I was getting you free Prada purses. And frankly, being a couple of hours late to an adult man's birthday party is only a crime in the movies. Like, you're a grown-ass man. He is a chef. He works in the food industry. You think he ever gets home before three in the morning? Are you kidding me? He doesn't understand that for one year she has a demanding job that will essentially open every path for her in journalism that's left remaining to journalists? Like, come on, man. Suck it up. And her friends are all, ooh, I don't understand you anymore. You suddenly care about the field you're working in when you didn't used to see value in it. As if that somehow makes her a bad person. Yeah, she understands garments now better. That's good. That means she's learning her job. I hope she buys the tallest skyscraper in the world and that all of you hurt your necks looking up at her. You don't deserve her. Every one of Andy's friends and and relationships outside of Meryl Streep was bad to her. And she should have stayed. They should have gotten matching helicopters and then created a sequel to Fifty Shades of Grey where Meryl Streep was was the the sexual hitting person. And I'm not good at describing BDSM relationships, uh, so I'll, I'll go ahead and stop there. But if you rewatch that movie, um, please yell at her unsupportive, mooching friends and lovers for me um, because I will never, ever, ever get over it. 
Thank you for listening to Dear Prudence, even though you didn't have to. Our producer is Casey Miner. Our theme music was composed, I'm told, by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and write us a review. Reviews make you feel good about yourself, clear your skin, and help new listeners find the podcast. Plus, we'd love to know what you think. Just search for Slate Dear Prudence. If you want us to answer your question, call and leave a message on 401-371-3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't even have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Please keep it short. Time is fleeting, and we're going to die. 30 seconds or a minute, and send it to me at prudencepodcast at gmail.com. That's prudencepodcast, all one word, at gmail.com.